You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Some of our audience has been asking us, what is the Forum exactly? Well, for over 31 years, the Forum on Workplace Inclusion, or the Forum for short, has served as a convening hub for those seeking to grow professional leadership and effectiveness skills in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or what we call DEI, by engaging people, advancing ideas, and igniting change. The Forum operates as an organization within Augsburg University, which is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. However, the Forum's audience is international, offering a wide variety of DEI events, programs, and resources to businesses, professionals, and individuals around the world, all looking to grow professional leadership and effectiveness skills. We do this through our events and programs, our media platform, like our website, and our flagship event, the Annual Conference. If you'd like to learn more about the Forum on Workplace Inclusion, we encourage you to visit our website at forumworkplaceinclusion.org. Here are a few messages from the Forum before we start the show. Register for our next webinar, New Voices, New Visions, Ideas about the Future of DNI from Next-Gen Leaders. The webinar is on Thursday, November 14th at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Registration is free. This webinar draws on the insights of Inclusion Nextwork's community of rising leaders across backgrounds, geographies, industries, and experience levels to explore new ways in which our generation engages with inclusion, diversity, equity, accessibility, and social justice, or ideas. Registration is free at forumworkplaceinclusion.org webinar. The deadline to submit nominations for the 2020 Diversity Awards has been extended to this Friday, November 8th. Do you know someone who leads by example and demonstrates a commitment to bold exploration, risk-taking, and learning from both failure and success? Or what about someone who has raised or raises awareness of workplace diversity and inclusion issues? Then nominate them for the Forum's 2020 Diversity Awards. More information at forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash diversity awards. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all of our listeners and subscribers. Your engagement with our podcast supports our growth and helps us reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you've already written a review, thank you. And please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or colleague. Word of mouth from our audience is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's webinar. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. I am pleased to have you here today for today's webinar, Culture Clash, Can Latino Culture, Identity, and, Cul and Corporate Culture Be Reconciled? with presenter Andreas Tapia of Corn Ferry. This is the sixth webinar in the 2019 Forum on Workplace Inclusion webinar series sponsored by Aeon. We hope you enjoy this experience and find this information helpful on your in your work and join us for future webinars. Today's webinar is SHRM eligible and the activity ID will be provided at the end of the webinar. It is also being recorded and being broadcast live on, live on Facebook. The recording will be posted to our website next week and will be available for download via podcast. Visit our website forum on workplaceinclusion.org or on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn for more information. Thank you so much for your support, Aeon. And without further ado, I would like to hand things over to Andreas. Uh, hello, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be. And I'm uh, very excited to be here with you to, to share, um, you know, some thinking on Culture Clash. Can Latino culture, identity, and corporate culture be reconciled? And um, so I'm going to dive right in uh, just by uh, sharing a little bit of my background. 
Um, and, and for those of you who are Lat Latino, Latinx, Hispanic, I want you to be thinking about your own story along the way. Um, because the Latino story can vary uh, by the number of Latinos that exist. It's quite diverse and varied. And some of this will connect and some of it will be very different. And for those who are not Latino, I know that you you dialed in because you want to learn. You want to be an ally. You want to be supportive. You, you, you are either a co-worker or somebody in HR and DNI want to get insights into uh, Latino Latinx inclusion. So um, I grew up in Lima, Peru. Uh, my dad, Peruvian, my mom, American. Uh, my dad, Fernando Andres Tapia Mendieta Gavino, a cardiologist who got his MD in San Marcos University, the oldest university in the Americas. And he came to uh, the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio to get his residency. And my mom came from a small town uh, in the Pacific Northwest United States, a small town called Harrington, Washington, 50 miles west of Spokane. And, uh, you know, and very tiny uh, in terms of its, you know, its size. And she wanted to get out of a small town, go to the big city. So she went to the big city of Cleveland uh, to get her electrocardiogram technician certificate, also at the Cleveland Clinic. So my dad, the cardiologist, my mom, the EKG technician, between the heartbeats, they meet, they marry. My dad does another residency in Chicago where I'm born. And when I'm nine months old, my dad uh, puts his new family into a green comet, a car that era, drives down to the port of San Francisco, gets in a cargo ship, and sails down to Puerto Callao off the coast of Peru. And that's where I grew up. And a bilingual, bicultural home with Spanish, my first and native language, English, a close second, and all the things of a multicultural home, including or especially the food. So one night, arroz con pollo. The next night, meatloaf and potatoes. And so it was. So I had abuela and abuela, grandpa and grandma, tia and tias, um, um, uncles and aunts, uh, first, second, third, fourth cousin, where your fifth cousin is close to you as your first cousin in the sort of Latino fam, familia, uh, familion. Uh, big family, uh, where your fifth cousin is as close to you as your first cousin in that sort of uh, environment. But I had these American grandparents in these this tiny town called Harrington, Washington, a world away. And I remember the first time uh, going to visit them when I was in third grade, it was my first experience with really feeling different, really standing out. I was coming from a developing third world nation to the most advanced civil, uh, economy and civilization from Spanish dominant to English dominant, from Catholic to Protestant, from an urban environment of six and a half million people at the time to this tiny town of 500. And, uh, and like I said, I stood out. I used to have a really heavy accent when I spoke English. I'm not that dark skinned, but I was a darkest skinned person there. And when they threw a ball at me, I would kick it. Uh, so no matter what I did, um, I stood out. And I experienced both the downside and the upside of that being Latino. Um, uh, there was uh, the downside, the kidding, the taunting, even the bullying that went with it at times, uh, and, but also the upside. There were people in this town who were generally interested in the son of Jackie K. Graham, my mom. So every few Southern Hemisphere summers, I would come up to the Northern Hemisphere uh, for a few weeks, even a few months at a time. I'd go to school, ride combine during harvest season on a big John Deere, and they enrolled me in Little League Baseball in a Gateway Baseball mid so I could catch the ball. But my growing up was in Lima. Uh, I went to a parochial school for elementary. And uh, knowing that I was coming for college in the United States, I went to the American High School of Lima. And I went to school with the sons and daughters of business executives, diplomats, spies, and missionaries. Not just from the US and Peru, but across Latin America, Asia, Europe. So it was a very multinational, diverse environment. 
and I had a choice to get a proving diploma or a U.S. diploma, and I got both. So I got proving history, U.S. history, Latin American literature, and Anglo-American literature. So by the time it was time for me to come up to the U.S. for college, by sheer coincidence, I ended up back in Chicago to study at Northwestern in journalism. Um, I felt I was ready. I had worked on my accent. I knew about Faulkner, Melville, Washington, Lincoln, and King. And along with my soccer ball, I brought that uh, baseball mitt. But the truth is that I was not ready. I was ready only for the tip of the iceberg differences. No idea the majority of the iceberg you know, lay below the waterline, that part of the iceberg that sinks ships and sinks relationships. And I ran into that over and over and over again in terms of a cultural clash. And now that cultural clash happened in my personal life, in my university life. Uh, but let me fast forward to my corporate life because this is where you know I began to develop these points of view around culture clash and kind of be reconciled. And as someone who grew, grew up in a bilingual and bicultural environment, there was culture clash in our home between my parent parents' different uh, upbringings, and I experienced it across you know the different relationship groups that I went back and forth. And then I experienced it in corporate America. So that's sort of my biography has informed some of my insights here. But let me just uh, uh, wrap up this personal part before I get into some the bigger strategic uh, data-driven um, ins insights. And that is that um, I was did not realize that as a middle-class Latin American male uh, who grew up in uh, uh, South America specifically, that in the work environment, I had been conditioned to have a direct style communication. That was the appropriate way to communicate. That was the best way of communicate. That was a, you know, the most effective. And, um, and I never questioned that. Uh, unbeknownst to me, um, a lot of my colleagues uh, at Hewitt, where I was the first ever chief diversity officer, um, where white female, um, uh, Midwestern, college educated, and the part that was unbeknownst to me is that they had been socialized in a Midwestern, you know, in Midwestern nice, indirect style communication. And this is where uh, one of the clashes that I wanna share with you here, there were many, but on the basis of this. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and it played out like this. Uh, I, we, I've been in a meeting, I present an idea. Um, I would hear things from my colleagues, Andres, uh, I agree with you 100%. And then they would tell me three ways in which they did not agree with me. But because they agree with me 100%, uh, they sounded like tweaks. And so I would proceed from the meeting uh, as, we, as if we had agreement. And then the emails, voicemails fly in and they said, Andres, what are you doing? We did not agree to this. And I'm like, what part of 100% didn't I understand? In fact, weren't you nodding? Weren't you smiling? Weren't you taking copious notes? Does, does that not mean agreement? And they said, oh no, that does not mean agreement. What did it mean? Well, I learned the hard way that they were, it meant that they were listening respectfully, but they were, they told me as we got into this uh, conversation that I should not mistake it for agreement, but in fact, I had. And so uh, this then sort of illustrated uh, the, the, how this plays out when we see diversity and differences we do not understand, that the difference from how mama or mama taught us the right way to do things we can only assume one or two things about them. They're either incompetent or a bad person because why else would you do it that way? And so Latinos, uh, in, as well as any other racial, ethnic, uh, national immigrant work or group are gonna encounter these kinds of, of differences. Now, 
uh, one caveat here, my experiences as a Latin American Latino in the US, the Hispanic American experience in many ways is very different. Some of these cultural norms uh, for Hispanic Americans tend to actually be about a more indirect style communication. So we have to be careful about how we generalize certain things. But my point here is that there is, there are Latino cultural norms that Latinos from Latin America and the U.S. do share, and I'm going to get into that more, uh, more in depth. But w the challenge that we face about corporate America, in, the, in, in this one example that I give, is that then when uh, we express ourselves in a way that's culturally um, authentic to us, it may clash with the corporate environment we're in. Now, many corporate environments could be uh, direct themselves, and we know that, but in the Midwest, in this particular thing, or in HR, I was dealing with that. And so then the judgments sort of flare up, and the judgments sounded like this toward me, right? Um, uh, you know, doesn't listen, does whatever he wants, kind of a little bit authoritarian, throwing a gender thing, you know, typical for a guy, you know, with a group of women to really ride, override uh, their opinions throw in a, a national culture one, you know, uh, I came from a 12 a country that I lived under a 12 year dictatorship. And so maybe the you Ocalismo know, or coming from an authoritarian type of environment, et cetera, et cetera. So judgments were very heavy, but I had my own judgments toward my own colleagues that did not help our relationship. You know, you can imagine, and when I'm in a group and I facilitate, I ask, what do you, how do you think I judge them? And things that come up are weak, passive aggressive, don't say what they mean, uh, don't, don't mean what they say, uh, duplicitous. And so if you think about the judgments toward my experience of people with my type of background and then the reaction that uh, I was having, then it's not a good place. It's not an inclusive thing. And despite having shared the values and uh, we liked each other and respected each other at the, at the beginning, things sort of deteriorated when we were not aware that these biographical differences are really playing a role in our ability to be inclusive. And my God, I was the chief diversity officer and I was failing big time just interpersonally on the, on the sort of inclusion thing. Um, not only me toward them, but my ability to influence an environment to be more inclusive of people that are different. So that was my setup. Now there's ways in which I resolved that uh, successfully with my colleagues. We resolved it together, but I'm gonna set that aside for now. And I want to shift gears a little bit and, and, and pull way back before um, to look at the Latino presence in the United States and then drill back down to this corporate clash and Latino uh, uh, cultural clash that I'm talking about. So why is this important is that because the numbers are huge. Uh, Latinos are already 17% of the population in the United States and projected to be a third of the country. Think about it, right? A third of the country by 2050 or 2060, depending on a variety of factors. But that is not a small number. Uh, when you think about a third population, that is um, quite massive. And that translates today to 60 million Latinos. And uh, given all the controversies happening with uh, immigration and undocumented people being undocumented and the deportations and the incarcerations and things like that, which are very relevant to this conversation in general about the Latino reality. Uh, but within corporate America, you know, there's, um, there is many people who, for whom that immigrant status thing, it, it matters to, to us about how people that share a background are treated. 
But in terms of our particular situation, we're talking about um, 50 million of those 60 million are U.S. citizens. So this con uh, as much as there's an urgency to deal with the injustices around uh, how those who are undocumented are being treated, um, there's also another conversation to have in parallel that regardless of that conversation, you know, we, we, you know, many times the Latino conversation is treated as if, you know, majority are undocumented, and that is very far from uh, the truth. And, and this presence of 60 million Latinos uh, leads to um, a, a massive contribution to the economy. And, and economists would tell you that one of the bulwarks of keeping the economy going is home ownership. And what we have here is that Latinos have been projected to account for half of all new homeowners in the next uh, five years. So think about how massive of an economic impact that is. And in terms of business ownership growth, um, this is a, a a tracking of new business growth on a year-over-year -year basis and all businesses for sort of new businesses are growing at 20 percent uh, but Latino-owned businesses are growing at 46 percent so there's a big entrepreneurial spirit within the Latino community that leads to capital accumulation uh, job generation and all the things that come with it and if you uh, you know roll all that up the purchasing power of Latinos in, the, in this country is 1.7 trillion dollars uh, which is growing at a rate of $100 billion a year. So uh, this presence um, has sheer uh, economic fortitude and power, and it's only growing. Um, and Latino demographics tend to be younger, so Latinos, as a, the bell curve of Latinos, haven't even reached their peak uh, earning power. Uh, we are present in, in uh, arts and entertainment and media. Uh, Jorge Ramos anchors the most watched newscast among all new networks. So not just Spanish-speaking networks, all networks. Uh, call it cable or call it um, the networks. Um, you know, so this is uh, a, quite a statement um, about the, our impact. And it, for those of you who love um, Latin artists and salsa or merengue or bachata, uh, and, uh, and, you know, you have your favorite among that, you know, it transcends uh, the, the Latino community and it's a lot of our artists uh, have mainstreamed and have influenced uh, dance styles, artistic styles, architectural styles in this country. When it comes to politics, um, percent of the U.S. electorate uh, that is Latino in 2008, 9% uh, uh, projected to be in this upcoming election, which with a lot at stake uh, on a variety of topics, the, the Latino electorate is expected to be 13%. So that's a 50% increase in the Latino presence in the electorate. Uh, so it's consequential in terms of uh, addressing uh, the things that are important to the different aspects of the Latino community. Now, um, we have had a, um, a challenge in uh, translating our numbers into even more economic power tied to education, but the news is getting um, much better on this issue because on the dropout rates, which at one point were way up on the 34%, if you, and by in 1996, this is from high school, um, it has dropped down to 10%. Um, and so that is a significant, uh, important uh, variable in our education. And conversely, what's happening to kids that are graduating high school, many of them kind of had achieved a lot more than their uh, parents, immigrant parents, who many of them did not even have a high school education, and they were discouraged from going to college and they were encouraged to work in the family business 
But there's been a big campaign on the part of society and corporations and not-for-profits and universities and government to really get the message that if for all the sacrifice of achieving the American dream that the parents did, that education is a big part of achieving that American dream. And so you can see here from 1977 to 2010, uh, and that's as late as I could get the statistics for this, um, and this is in the, in the um, thousands, and so you can see the increase in Latinos uh, getting bachelor's and associate degrees uh, increase in a you know, significant way that augurs well for the Latino talent pipeline. Now, given all those big numbers, um, let me uh, unpack this, this graphic here uh, in terms of corporate America, and this is going to set the stage up for this corporate clash of cultures, because if you look at the blue bars here, that's a percentage of Latino presence in the United States, right? That's Latino population year over year up to 2020. But then if you look at Latino board seats and in the C-suites, look at the numbers. This is uh, what my co-author uh, of Authentico, the Definitive Guide to Latino Career Success, and on which a lot of this uh, research is based, um, Robert Rodriguez, uh, you know, this is what Robert and I call the 4% corporate shame. You know, that despite all the energy around diversity and around Latino and employee resource groups or business resource groups, et cetera, et cetera, you know, not only are we at a low number, it's a number that has really not moved. And this is a corporate shame. What, there's really no excuse for this, and we're wanting to unpack what, what is getting in the way. And there's a variety of factors, but I'm going to zero in on the, the corporate clash issue. Now, um, when we talk about um, uh, Latino identity in corporate America, and, and before we, uh, we really get into the, the friction, of corporate culture versus Latino culture, we have to recognize that Latinos come from 27 different nationalities. Uh, some are first, second, third, fourth generation Latino. Some are English speaking, Spanish uh, dominant, English dominant, Spanglish dominant. Uh, and uh, some are urban, some are rural, some uh, are, you know, have been middle class, multi-generationally. Others are first generation going to college. Uh, and some grew up in the U.S., some uh, grew up in Latin America. So there's vast differences of what it means to be Latino. And so um, what I want, I'm going to do a poll here with you now. And this poll is limited just to the topic at hand. And so I'm going to ask you to identify, and it's not a super inclusive list of all the possibilities out there, but it's just, it, I just want to get a flavor for the audience as we kind of go down here as it relates to this issue. So here's the poll. Um, and in a moment, the actual poll is going to uh, pop up. Um, and, uh, and actually, uh, Ben, you can pop it up now because uh, uh, do you self-identify? You can just click on the answer. Um, you self-identify as Latinx only. You self-identify as Latina, Latino only. You self-identify uh, only as Hispanic. So I'm looking at the labels here, right? Or D, you're comfortable self-identifying as any or all of the identities in A, B, and C, it doesn't really matter to you, right? You just kind of uh, respond to any one of those and it's no problem. Or you're not Latinx, Latina, Latino, Hispanic. And um, it's always interesting to see how this shows up and, and you're gonna see this in a moment in terms of the results. And I recognize that sometimes it's hard to answer this question. Um, whether you're sort of in the Hispanic, Latino, Latinx side, maybe you haven't thought about it, or you feel that 
there's still an identifier here that doesn't quite that's missing here, and that's that's okay too. All right, uh, we're going to end the poll here, and so um, I think Ben, they can see the results, right? Yeah, good. So what do we have here? Uh, we have one um, percent identifying as Latinx, and and that's interesting in and of itself because Latinx is sort of surging as a new term. Uh, there's a debate about whether it's a good term to use or not and, and all that, that we can unpack that maybe in the Q&A thing. Um, we have 11% self-identifying as Latina, Latino, 6% as only Hispanic. Uh, but then uh, we, we're seeing that for 37% um, of the audience here, it doesn't matter that these seem interchangeable, you seem comfortable either one, and you may have a preference about which one is used depending on the context. Um, and then we have our allies here, if you will, those who are not Latinx, Latino, Latino, Hispanic, and it's a little bit less than half, and that's very reassuring uh, to know that uh, there's that many people who are really interested in learning more about our community. So that's, that's very helpful, so thank you for that. So uh, we can, I'm gonna, uh, we're gonna close the poll, and I'm gonna keep moving here. And so, Given the, the variety of Latino, Latin, Latinx experiences out there, these are the kinds of things, and these are just four examples of things that pop up into any group of Latinos in a room full of Latinos. You know, it's Hispanic Heritage Month, you walk into the Hispanic BRG, uh, and everybody's, you hear salsa, and you hear you some tacos and arroz con pollo, and some flan, and some uh, leches. Uh, but when you ask people about identity, you know, somebody might say, I'm proud of being a Latina, but how to be authentic and still fit in corporate. I don't want to be labeled. I just want to be recognized for my talents. I'm Hispanic and I'm American. I don't like the, any dichotomy. Or people like me are being discriminated against, so I'm very worried identifying as a Latino. So, and you can add, you know, 20, 30 uh, more or, or plus more uh, kinds of variances on these messages. And these are all real. These are all Latino, Latina. But how we think about it, it really creates a crisis uh, for many of us. For others, it's not a crisis. It's just a sense of embracing identity. And for others, it, it's sort of a sense of confusion or sorting out. So in, in Roberts and my research, uh, where we interviewed 20 very successful Latina, Latina the boomers, because they were sort of top of the game and corporate and on boards and stuff like that, we did a... Uh, five focus groups of Latinx, and we're, we use Latinx to mean more Gen X and millennial uh, people with Latino looking at background. And, um, and we did it in LA, two in Chicago, uh, one in Dallas, one in New York. And we did an online survey with about 300 responses. So based on all that, we came up with a taxonomy about where um, Latino Latinos are landing in, in aggregate about their Latino identity. First of all, there's the invisible Latino, and it's the Latino or Latina who does it might have a you know a surname that is you know uh, Hispanic or, or Latin, uh, Spanish based, but and they may even have features that one may say you know that's kind of Latin like or whatever, but they it's not part of their identity at all. They don't self-identify it, they don't relate to it, or they don't want anybody to sort of really see them that way, and they just want to sort of stand on the merits of. Who they are and their skills and, 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 and abilities and stuff like that. So that's what we call the invisible Latino and that's a very real presence and it helps us sort of think about it because we know people who 
people sometimes scratch their head. Well, I know they're Latino. They, if it doesn't happen, they don't identify. How come they don't show up to the ERG? Uh, then there's the equivocal Latino. And the uh, equivocal Latino is that, that Latino who sort of uh, equivocates about how, when to show up or not to show up or whether to show up by Latino. And it may look like this, right? That um, when they're in corporate, they, they might seem like an invisible Latino, right? That they, they, they don't manifest any way that way. And, but then back at the barrio or back home, you know, it's their sister's quinceanera and you go to the party and, and they actually invite some people from work and they're there doing salsa and bachata, you know, and they're, and they're very animated and, you know, more of that Latin uh, gestures and, and, and emotive way of expressing and their friends are like, who is this guy, right? Uh, where did he come from? And, and their way of speaking and, and, and all that, not only speaking Spanish, but how they speak and how they communicate, very different. And then this person gets an award back at corporate, invites the parents, the parents are very proud, but you know, he's, he, there's nothing about that Latinicity that shows up in the corporate environments. They've had to adapt and assimilate so much that they really are sort of kind of split in how they manifest their identity. Then there's an unapologetic Latino or Latina, and that is the one that within 25 seconds, you know that they're Latino Latina, right? They, they have um, manifested, you know, in terms of their, maybe their way of speaking, uh, the way they pronounce their name, you know, because there's oh, this a whole thing, right? Uh, there's things, a lot of anglicized pronunciation of, uh, of uh, you know, Pedro could become a Fred, right? And but that's by choice or how nickname. But others might say, no, I am Pedro or I'm Andres. Or for, for me, it's very important to put the accent on the, the E of my name, even on a name tag at an event. If it's missing and 98% of the time it's missing, I put it on because that's important to me, right? Uh, it's an identifier, but it doesn't have to be important to everybody. But that's the unapologetic Latino that, um, you know, I am, you got to accept me as I am. I'm not going to change. And this is sort of, I'm going to wear my Latinicity uh, without much cover. And then the final one is the retro Latino. And this is a Latino who uh, maybe might have grown up as an invisible Latino, uh, may have been the only white, uh, I'm sorry, the only Latino in a very wide environment. Um, like my co-author, uh, Robert Rodriguez, he'll, he'll tell us a story of uh, growing up as a Latino in Minnesota and playing hockey and ca being called Bobby. And, uh, and it was only once he went to college when he connected with other Latinos through the affinity group or, you know, the, the, the Latino group and, uh, that he started to, um, connect, you know, he did not speak Spanish, uh, but he started to affirm that side of him and to retroactively starting to uh, affirm his sense of Latinicity. And now he's, he took Spanish lessons. He took salsa lessons. Uh, he studied Latin American literature and history and Hispanic American, you know, and even his relationships started to be more on the, on, you know, connecting more with the Latino thing. And then now, for those of you who know him, you know, that's his work is centered around Latino identity. So um, when I do this in a workshop, I usually ask for a raise of hands about what people identify with. And you can raise your hand more than once because it depends on the situation. And, uh, and I usually don't ask for the invisible Latino hands because, well, by definition, they're invisible, right? But then I ask for the other three, and invariably, uh, there's, I, I'm, I'm kind of, this is not scientific, but based on the many times we've done it, you know, there's, it's kind of like a third, a third, a third, 
in terms of this um, way of people manifest. So we know that this issue of identity, you know, we are in flux, we are in different places. And the fact that people raise their hands more than once show that, well, you know, it just really depends on, on where I'm at about how I choose to manifest. So this is, and this kind of makes things complicated for corporate America and for those who are not Latinx, if you know, say, okay, I'm trying to learn about Latinos, but you tell me that they're sort of all over the place in terms of the sense of identity, you know, how do I engage? But this identity thing is vital. If you want to understand Latino reality, you have to understand that we are a community within this country uh, with vast diversity and in a state of flux about our identity in different places. And I have to say in this current political environment, that state of flux and identity and feeling of feeling threatened is very real for many of us. And but these are the realities if you want to be an ally of Latinos. And then for those who are Latino, we have to um, kind of, we encourage, you know, leaning into um, answering the question if we haven't uh, answered it. What does it mean for me to be Latino, Latino, Latinx? And what's holding me back in my corporate job from really being more fully who I am? And so now to the granularity, right? So now we end up with new blends. Uh, what does it mean? You know, as we answer the question, we can be a second generation Latino veteran exer, an Afro-Latino Neorican, a millennial marathon runner, Latino supervisor, boomer third generation Latino executive with adult kids, a Mexican lesbian single mother, an Ecuadorian born American citizen with children born in India, a China Latina, an immigrant Latina engineer, right? An Argentinian working single dad general manager, y el que tiene de todo un poco, the one that has a little bit of everything. So, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for those of you who are in sort of this Latin, Latino umbrella, well, you have your own run-on sentence about what it would mean to be Latino for you. And these are our realities. And, and because we're not a racial group, we are a multiracial group. We're, you know, European, we're indigenous, we're African, we're Asian. Uh, these are all the immigrant patterns that came in a, in a part of the world, Latin America, where there's a lot of mixture of, of DNA uh, that did not happen in the same way in places like the U.S., that, that we are not distinguished by racial characteristics. Some of us are Afro, you know, Afro-Latino. Others are like Latina-Latina. Others are more, you know, European influence in terms of our DNA. And so this puts Latinos in sort of an interesting place where many, not all, but many could actually make a choice about how they want to present um, and they, how much they want to cover because skin color doesn't tell the full story. And so we have more of a choice than those that maybe by uh, certain facial features or certain ra uh, racial tones cannot have as much of a choice, at least in terms of how the workplace or society reacts to it. So there's a lot of internal work for, for many of us around this. So then this brings me to um, this, uh, the premise of this um, webinar where Latino and corporate culture can sort of clash. Now, a big caveat here. We're talking about archetypes versus stereotypes. So archetype, a general tendency of a group of people to behave a certain way. A stereotype, the assumption that every member of the group behaves according to the archetype. And so uh, in, in our work, and also the work we've done here at Corn Ferry um, on the efficacy of Latino talent um, and the power of choice about how we want to show up and present, um, we, we have been able to uh, document at least five ways in which archetypically uh, Latinos, uh, the norm of Latinos might clash with corporate American culture. 
So one of them is on locus of control uh, and, um, and using more academic language, uh, is it internal control, you know, the sense of, uh, of control and locus of control is within oneself or is it external control? It's outside of us. So one is more pull yourself by your bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves. Um, and, um, and then the other one, more rooted in Latino Catholic fatalism. Not all Latinos are Catholic. Uh, many of them are evangelical. But Catholic is a, a very predominant influence, even for those who have not been Catholic, just from a cultural perspective. And this whole thing of si Dios quiere, a God willing, is very important. Uh, kind of a part of our cosmology. And you can imagine how in corporate America, you know, which is always about looking for accountability and who's responsible and this and that, that this can sort of have um, uh, a, a, a particular clash. Uh, in terms of status, um, you know, is it hierarchical uh, worldview or is it horizontal? So European American culture, which by the way, I, it's very correlated with corporate American culture, no coincidence because corporate American culture, you know, very influenced by the white male. So not a judgment, but a, just a reality and who shapes culture is the, the leaders and the leaders have happened to be white males. So that more, uh, at least um, egalitarian up to a point kind of thing where CEOs say, call me Jim. Um, and there's a lot of CEOs that go by the first name that, you know, um, many Latinos may feel uncomfortable with where it's jefe manda. Uh, in fact, in, Mexi in Mexico, um, when somebody says something and you want to hear it again or you didn't quite get it or yeah i'm answering to you it's monday you know which in english means you know it's at your orders right at your command um and so this thing of hierarchy and so this can play a role in whether in a more egalitarian corporate culture that really asks for and expects and rewards uh speaking up and 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 uh and challenging uh, for those that come from a more hierarchical environment, that might be hard and that might, they might get dinged for maybe being not as, as assertive or being perceived as being submissive or not speaking up or perhaps not having any ideas. Um, sense of identity, uh, is it communal or is it individualistic? Um, so uh, on the individualistic side, sense of identity comes from the self. Uh, from the communal side, which Latinos are quite communal, it comes from who you belong to. You know, you go to um, uh, and, and, and to a party and you get asked, you know, mostly a white party. And the first question is, what do you do? You know, what do you do? Um, and you go to a Latino party and one of the first questions you get asked is, de donde eres? Where are you from? Um, and so that sense of, oh, quien es tu familia? Um, and so this whole thing that even that first step as we connect with one another can be very different. And if for those of you who are salsa, bachata, or rock and roll dancers, you know that that if you that first step is off at the beginning of the dance, and the rest of the dance you're gonna it's hard to get back in sync. Um, so um, the this is uh, an important distinction about we languages is I language, and no coincidence I would argue that English is the only language in the world where first person pronoun is capital. That's how primary the sense of the individual is versus Spanish ustedes, the plural you is what's capitalized. And a little segue, um, behavior-based interview, right? Um, the, uh, is intended to mitigate bias. It's not tell me what you think, but tell me what you've done. So an individualistic hiring manager 
is interviewing a communally based Latino candidate. And, um, and when, when they're asked, tell me of a time you led a team to success, what she says is, well, what we did, what my colleagues contributed, what you know, Jorge and David and, and Maria did was the following. And uh, then there's a debrief session afterwards with the hiring manager and the recruiter. And I've been in those meetings in my role uh, as a chief diversity officer. And suddenly the, they look at each other and they say, I don't think that person did anything. I think they just rode the backs of everyone else. And the question is, really, are you sure? You know, how much the power of even a pronoun could misdirect an interpretation of someone's abilities to do the job. Fairness, is it about following the rules? Well, it depends on the circumstances. One is more universalist on the left-hand side. You know, one rule applies to everybody equally, or the other one is, well, it depends on the circumstance. Depende, right? And, uh, and this sort of, uh, can you imagine a corporate environment um, that, um, it, you know, you got regulation and you have rules, you have policy, absolutely, you know, we're gonna abide for that. But then that spills over into there being, um, many times very little leeway for alternative ways of, of doing things. And, and so I'm not talking about rules from a regulatory or legal perspective. I'm talking about rules, the unspoken rules. And some of them are so hard and fast. And, uh, you know, for many of us Latinos, uh, it comes from a lot of our socioeconomic upbringing or our countries and the need to improvise in a state of emergency and a totalitarian environment and lack of freedom of the press or you still want to have your party even though there's a curfew for political reasons from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And so we improvised and we had toque toque parties. And these were parties where everybody showed up someone's house before dusk and we locked ourselves in and played dance all night until dawn. And so there's a sense of improvisation uh, to kind of make our way through uh, situations that many times feel impossible. Uh, and one more on emotions, um, you know, the European American uh, influence your, you know, uh, thinking is a little bit, don't show your emotions as much, uh, keep them in check, a stiff upper lip versus the pura vida, this is a Costa Rican, say, um, tico approach, but it sort of captures a sort of a thing of, you no, know, let it all hang out, express yourself, live life, um, life is short, um, you know, just enjoy it as fully as possible. And particularly Latinas in our focus, actually we did a couple of Latina uh, focus groups um, and this issue of uh, expressiveness is true for Latinos and Latinas, but for Latinas particularly so, and many of them have been felt that they've been hurt um, in their career aspirations simply because they, they just express themselves in a particular way that was frowned upon because it was too expressive. Oh, I'm sorry, I had one more in time. And I think this is sort of one of those classic ones um, that um, uh, I think many of us are familiar with. So uh, let me round the, the corner here. Um, I'm not a baseball guy, but I always tune in at, at World Series. So now I got rounding the bases, you know, I kind of picked that up uh, from watching. So we're going to round the bases here as we head for home. Um, the, uh, what, can, what can Latinx and organizations so um, in our book, uh, we have a, a Latino executive manifesto, and I'm happy to share with everybody a PDF with these 10 things that you can read at your leisure, and so we'll send it afterwards. Uh, but I'm gonna elaborate just on a couple of these, um, and uh, because it's a mutual responsibility. Um, we, Latino, 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 Hispanic, have a responsibility in a certain area, but so does corporate America. 
um, I think we must engage with and resolve our own cultural identity. And I've already made that point, but I can't stress that enough. You, we cannot expect corporate America and our allies to engage with us and support us in ways that we need if we ourselves are ambivalent or confused or uncertain or too uh, inner in this whole issue about who we are in, in the environment. Um, we, I believe um, that we can be powerful in the U.S. as Latinos by not making it an either or, am I American or Latino? But I think we have a cultural asset called biculturality that many Latinos in the end are bicultural, but many of them have not embraced the power behind that identity. And so how can we adapt to corporate America in appropriate ways without assimilating, which is a surrender of identity? Um, a couple more things here. Um, among all those different kinds of Latinos that we have, unfortunately, we have let those be divisive things between us, you know, the Mexicans and the Cubans and the Peruvians, you know, and the Argentinians, we tend to be a little bit too conflictual with one another and divisive. And suddenly those 60 million Latinos become a lot less powerful uh, in society because we allow these divisions to get in the way. And I've seen this in employee resource groups, by the way. Um, and if, if there's employee resource groups participants on this call, which I imagine there are, um, you know, you have to ask, do we have that or not? And if you do, I really encourage you to address it. Um, and let me land here on this on Latinos and then finally for corporate. We have to, I believe, embrace ambition as an honorable intent. I think that humildad, humility, which is a Latino value, uh, mom says, mama says, que te crees? You know, what do you, who do you think you are? Say humilde, you know, be humble, wait to be tapped on the shoulder, your work will be noticed. And this is true for many Latinos and especially for Latinas. And then we're waiting for that tap. And every one of you here, those of you who are Latinx, Hispanic, are ambitious. You wouldn't have gone through education. You would not be in corporate America. You wouldn't be on the call if you were not ambitious. But corporate America needs to hear uh, uh, that ambition in a more explicit way. And how do we do it in a way that feels authentic and uh, honorable and not feeling like bragging or we're sort of violating some cultural code? But we have to do that work. Uh, because um, we, if we don't declare that ambition, corporate America is going to continue to overlook us. All right. And, uh, and finally, for corporations, um, you know, corporations have failed to become true meritocracies on a variety of things. We talk about African-Americans, Asians, gays, people with disabilities, and in this case, Latinos. We have a 4% shame. We have not moved the needle at all on management and board. And th this uh, corporation is going to have to take a hard, hard look and they just can't look at their overall Latino numbers because there's a lot of Latinos in entry-level roles. They got to look at what's happening and there's, the ceilings are hard and fast. And I would argue that some of these corporate culture, Latino cultural clashes are contributing to unconscious biases and even conscious biases. And corporations are going to have to speak up also on behalf of the Latino employees who are under siege in terms of the current political environment. And finally, Corporations must be willing to adapt and capitalize on the differences that Latinos can bring to corporate culture. Don't just say we want you, but really say what is it that you have to offer that we don't have, and we have plenty to offer. Even on the things on the cultural dimensions thing, we can bring a more communal we approach that is more required and as we go more horizontal, as we go more global, as we sort of de-emphasize the, the power of the one top leader and really distributes power more horizontally 
Latinos are a, cult, a cultural asset within corporations where we can sort of bring that we-ness to it, not just so, so we can feel more included and honored, but you, corporate America, need us for that kind of cultural change that you need to achieve. And there's a variety of other ways that, you know, as I've been presenting uh, this, this morning, this afternoon, that corporate America needs to not only welcome our difference, but leverage it and say they need it and learn from us in the same way that we have been learning from corporate America for all this time. So with that, um, we're at the Q&A part and I'm happy to receive any questions. Thank you so much for that um, for wonderful presentation, Andreas. Do you already have a couple questions from during the, um, during the webinar? First of is, would you please explain the difference between Hispanic and Latinx? I know what it is, but most don't. Yeah, we have to have uh, a recognition that the linguists will have one debate, which is important, and then there's an emotional, um, intuitive, um, interpersonal debate as well. And they intersect, but they're different. So linguistically, um, his, the term Hispanic was actually first brought into the mainstream of the United States during the Nixon administration when for the first time in the census, um, there was a need, a desire to count how many people of Hispanic descent there were, and they came up with the word Hispanic. So that kind of mainstreamed that term. Uh, but what happened was because a lot of Hispanics in, uh, in the U.S. are Mexican, because the majority of, in, in, uh, in that era, things have gotten much more diverse now, but in that time, the 70s, 80s, a uh, huge percentage were Mexican then it was almost like Hispanic got affiliated with Hispanic American and Mexican American, kind of got kind of. Got, kind of. So as more let, uh, people of uh, Spanish speaking backgrounds or Spanish speaking country backgrounds immigrated here and, and they got more diversified, then that they wanted to have a term that was more embracing and they became with Latino. And so, and so now you had Hispanic Latino and it was never super controversial and people kind of wore both, but it tended to be that those are more Mexican descent tended to be more comfortable with Hispanic and those were more South American descent tended to be more comfortable with Latino. And then others for personal reasons took one or the other, right? Whether they were Mexican or not. And then Latinx emerges in a sort of a, in an era where we're challenging gender binary language and vocabulary and identity and so Latino, for those of you who don't know Spanish, but for, for those who don't know Spanish, uh, Latino, in, in, you know, we have masculine and feminine in, in our verbs and nouns and all that stuff. And, uh, but the masculine is used as the all-encompassing thing. So you talk about Latino men, Latina women, right? But then if you talk Latinos, that's men and women. Well, nowadays, two things happen. Uh, uh, the binary issue and the non-binary issue. The binary one, well, women are saying, wait a minute, I, 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 we, we shouldn't. You know, Latino shouldn't be the word we use for men and women. So we used to use Latino, Latina, or the O with a slash and A. It got a little bit cumbersome. But then the non-binary case was, well, why should we distinguish male, female? There's a lot of people that don't. So Latinx, in the X, is sort of a current way of talking. And we talk about Generation X and this and that. And it's kind of hip and all that. So Latinx sort of emerged, but it's kind of new. So that's how we landed where we landed. Thank you. And uh, there was a question, where would people from Spain fall in that category? Where would you place people from Spain? Yeah, so the, this, um, 
um, conversation is mostly uh, America's conversation. Um, you know, and, and I've spelled, spelled it all out. We talk about immigration from Latin America here and things like that. People from Spain um, are, uh, react in a variety of different ways toward this. And so there's no one way and there's no one answer. I think it's very individual. There's some people from Spain that have immigrated to the U.S. And, uh, and, and fully embrace that sort of Latino thing because it's sort of this American dynamic and they like it. Others say, no, I'm Spanish. And it's a very different identity from those that grew up here with Spanish speaking or those from Latin America. And it's such a personal choice, right? Now, about the people who are in Spain, you know, I would discourage uh, trying to fold them in. Like if you're a global company and you're trying to talk about you know, Latino, Latino X and this and that, and you're trying to make it work for people from Spain. The people from Spain are, they're, they're the majority in Spain, right? They, this doesn't resonate for them in the same way. It only starts to resonate for them when they are in the minority, when they immigrate here or they're working here and suddenly, while they never thought of themselves as being Latino, Latinx or whatever, suddenly they realize that because they're Spanish speaking or because of some Spanish mannerisms that they may have some affinity culturally or they might be treated similar to other Hispanics and suddenly they realize, well, maybe I have some solidarity here and I'm going to choose to identify that way. But I tell you, there's no clear cut predictive answer. It's a very personal choice that people from Spain make. And how do you see familissimo emphasis on family, family time affecting Latino slash leadership and clashing with corporate America? Oh, yeah, this is a really important one because um, the power of familia or familismo Anizo. is that um, I have, you know, we all have obligations at some level that we feel to our parents, regardless of what culture. So this is not, uh, this is a universal thing. But in certain cultures, like the Latino one, that sense of obligation and commitment and expectation and the way we were brought up, is that much more powerful. And, and that's true for other, other racial, ethnic, national groups as well. But I'll talk about Latino for now. So what does that mean in terms of corporate America? We know that corporate America, one of the, ones, one of the ways to get ahead is to accept a, a new assignment. And many times those new assignments can be in another country, another part of the, of the, of the, um, of the US. And, and, and by definition, it means leaving your family. And we, we, we interviewed many people in our focus groups that, for whom that was not an option. I'm not going to leave mi familia. Um, and, and we're not talking, you know, their, their nuclear family or their spouse or their partner or their children, uh, which usually, you know, that's how people think about it in European American culture. We're talking, I can't leave my abuela, you know, my, my grandma, my grandpa, you know, my parents, you know, my, my cousins. I can't leave that um, because uh, either a sense of obligation, they need me, or they just don't want to. This is part of my sense of work-life balance. It's not just work time and personal time, but it's I can be with my familia, which is a big part of my identity. So corporate America wrestles with this. We say, well, okay, we're trying to offer these opportunities, but they're, they're not willing to move. And, and for Latinas, that's even more pronounced. So how to resolve it? It's not an easy answer, but um, we, you know, there's a couple things. Some companies have actually said, well, you know, we're going to relocate not only you, we're going to relocate your parents. Now, it's not relocating their 50 cousins, you know, but for some Latino Latinas, 
that that is actually good enough, right? That is quite a statement. Uh, but that's kind of redefining what relocation and relocation costs might be. Um, others have just simply been a lot more creative about um, virtual work and, and, you know, we're seeing virtuality happen for all kinds of reasons, but this is one way to, to, uh, to resolve it. Um, and, um, and so, but, but when we interviewed the Latinos and Latinas that were baby boomers that were very successful, they, they had some stories of that moment where they had to make a big sacrifice. And so for the younger generation that's listening, you know, we have ambivalent feelings about that advice um, the, because that was an advice given when they were very with Latinas and there wasn't an advocacy for them and they, they, they sacrificed a lot more than, the, than maybe this generation needs to. But, you know, many times it ultimately comes to a personal choice about what you're giving up personally and professionally, but there's some ideas there to sort of navigate the waters. And how do you ensure you are being recognized based on your work, and not just because your organization is trying to show slash prove that they are just are just are just supporting an Hispanic individual individual. I want to succeed based on my hard work, not because of my ethnicity. Absolutely. You know, in the end, all of us that are in corporate America are attracted to corporate America because of the promise of meritocracy. Uh, because, um, you know, it, it's it, the promise is that no one will be favored or disfavored based on who they are, and everybody will rise to the fullness of the potential. We are attracted to that. And so what we're doing is we're calling a corporate America on the carpet and saying, you have failed to deliver on that promise because it's not possible mathematically that only 4% of us are good enough to be in the boards and in executive leadership or in only 8% of us are enough to be in senior management. So that's what we're challenging. And we want to be given the chance to be seen for what we can contribute, you know, for our skills, for our smarts, right? And, you know, if for those Latinos and Latinas, and that's many of them, being seen as Latina, not being diminished, uh, and also not being invisible in our Latin identity, but recognizing that's an important part of who we are and how we move and how we operate, and that you want that and you welcome that combined with the skills and the abilities and the ambition, then that's what we're looking for. But we, none of us want to be promoted just as Latino, but we want our Latinicity to be affirmed and valued as well. And what is the one thing organizations can do to foster talent? In a similar note, what Latinx have to do to advance in corporate America? Is there a middle point where the two can converge? Absolutely. You know, corporate America has to do some remedial things here to uh, uh, right the imbalance. Um, and I'm sorry for that alarms, everybody. It's, it's, I'm at the Willis Tower, and um, I, can't, I can't stop the fire truck, so I'm sorry about that. Um, the, um, but there's no fire here, let me reassure you. Uh, <laughs> um, so corporate America has to do some remedial um, work because it's in a hole in terms of Latin advancement. And again, I'm not saying we're the only ones in a hole on this, other groups are, but, and so uh, corporate America has to put a redoubled effort on understanding it's, what is its Latino talent? Who is it? Many times corporate America doesn't even know who their Latino talent is. How many do they have? Where are they at? Where they come in? What, what's their ambition? Where are they getting stuck? What do they aspire to? So corporate America has to do a lot of just get to know your Latino talent just in terms of 
what do we have in the house, number one. Number two, get to know them more on an interpersonal basis, not only one-on-one, but as a group. Uh, what is the group, what does the ERG or the BRG aspire? Listen to their aspirations or frustrations, get to know them, and then come up with the, the interventions that can then kind of make up for you know these decades and decades of marginalization and unconscious biases. And yeah, do you need to maybe do something, brings Latino talent together under an, uh, a, a summit um, or some sp- it, differentiated development to address particular things that have been overlooked? Yes, but, uh, but that's sort of a temporary uh, scaffolding. You want to mainstream Latinos into your high potential education, succession management, uh, uh, formal leadership development that is available for leaders and managers, uh, and those kinds of things, and make sure that you have taken into account your Latino pipeline and you've really seen the Latino pipeline for what it is. So that's how we need to work on it from both ends. And it, for Latinos and Latinx, I, I, I can't tell you one thing. Of all the things that there's, there's plenty of things we don't have to assimilate to anymore or we can choose not to assimilate to or adapt to. Let's be more ourselves. Hopefully some of those things will come through here. But one, that uh, we've really come to a conclusion that we really want to not defer to that humildad and messages of our parents as it was expressed there. We need to declare our ambition because we are ambitious, but we need to declare it. Corporate America needs to see that we aspire for much more than what we got right now. And we're willing to do what it takes to get there. Wonderful. And we've got... Just want to give a heads up that we are um, at noon and we still have quite a few questions. Andreas, if you're comfortable to answering a few, uh, answering a few more, that'd be great. Um, Happy to. Yes, and the, and but also um, Andreas is going to be sharing his contact information for those who aren't able to get your question answered now. Um, so feel, please feel free to contact. Um, there it is. Feel free, please feel free to contact him if your question doesn't get answered. Um, or just let him know how wonderful you thought his webinar was. Um, the next question is, how does machismo play out in the corporate world? Ay, Dios mío. <laughs> um, and, and we have to talk, that has to be uh, also asked, how does machismo work in the Latino world, right? We, if, if we have work to do in, within our own culture, it, it's in the, it's, this is one of those areas. Um, machismo is alive and too well within the Latino uh, culture. Um, and so we have to take some responsibility uh, as a culture uh, for the ways in which Latinas might be viewed in corporate America because they're carrying the baggage of our culture that then we know there's machismo, uh, kind of Euro-American machismo, if you will, uh, forms in corporate America. And so Latinas get the double whammy of having gotten it from their own culture and continue to get it from their, our own culture and then getting it from corporate America, so with a different flavor, but it's, it's still there. So, you know, in, in Latino America, uh, uh, there is, uh, and in España, actually, um, there's also a movement, an anti-machismo movement that is gaining power like, uh, like I've never seen it before, where women are saying basta, no more, and, and, it's, and it's, it's become uncompromising, so really not accepting the cultural norms. These, by the way, every culture has its, you know, uh, sunny side and bright side and positive side and its shadow side. 
And one of the, the shadow sides of our culture is, is this, is machismo. And so we are challenging our own culture in terms of some of these norms about, you know, that's behind machismo, which is men are superior or, you know, men, women have certain roles and they shouldn't play in these other roles, um, et cetera, et cetera. Or even when women are in the corporate environment, you know, if this issue of taking notes and serving coffee and, and, and not speaking up or not being allowed to speak first is prevalent in corporate America, and it is in terms of women in many places, it's even more prevalent uh, in, in sort of all Latino environments. And, uh, and I think that's one of the things we have to challenge, continue to challenge, and we can ride the wave, if you will, what's emerging in, in uh, certain parts of Latino America and España uh, and bring it more to on the U.S. side uh, because it basta, right? It's, it, it, that has to stop. It's holding us back. Thank you. And have you always identified as an unapologetic Latino or did you shift from being a retro, invisible or equiv equivocal Latino? You know, for me, it's always been unapologetic. Um, it's, uh, you know, I'm one of those people that within 25 seconds of meeting me, you will know I'm from Peru and I'm very proud to be Latino. <laughs> and I've invited you to a party and we're going to talk salsa, right? And, and invited you to the Peruvian restaurant down the street. So, uh, however, um, in corporate America, as I told these, you know, some of the stories that I gave, it was hurting me, right? Being unapologetic. Um, and there's a part of being unapologetic that really, um, and I'm proud, you know, I, it's one thing to be unapologetic and here's who I am, but there's another part of being unapologetic where you're not being self-aware enough, right? Where you go, wait a minute, I'm in a diverse environment. They're misunderstanding me. I don't really get them. Maybe I need to pull back a little bit on sort of that unapologetic, uh, full-out Latinicity and, and see where I might be um, not communicating in, in ways that are as, can be as most effective. So quick example here, and I know we're over time, but since it was asked, um, let me tell you how I resolved my challenge with my white female Midwestern colleagues. You know, clearly, and we went through a process, right? We went through training and we went through cross-cultural identity and we came up with these you know, we understood this indirect, indirect stuff. So we had some self-awareness. And, 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 and I'm thinking, I'm saying, okay, clearly white Midwestern women disagree with each other, but how do they do it? I didn't, how do they signal that they, you know? and then I noticed that they had these filler words or phrases right before the disagreement. Like, I agree with you 100%. It's just my two cents. Help me understand. It might just be me. And right behind it was a disagreement. Well, I'm a literal guy, right? I'm direct. So if it's just your two cents, well, that's not worth very much. I'm not going to pay much attention to it. I was blowing past their signals. So I started to tune in more. And I realized that when I was direct um, and I would say, well, I don't agree with that. Or I don't think that's a good idea. Or, or why do you think that? You know, just kind of in a more challenging way, which directs how people do. And they don't think twice about it if they're not aware I started noticing that they they would stiffen up. They would be they get in a defensive crouch, and they would sort of triggering people's amygdalas, right? Because from a socialization perspective, that's just not that's kind of a threatening way to receive information. I didn't want to come across a way, but I was seeing that it was doing. So I start using some of those filler words, right? I was a little bit less unapologetic Latino, a little bit more Midwestern, if you will. And I, and I never got used to, it's just my two cents. I, I, never got, I never got comfortable with that. But the one that I learned from them that I really liked is help me understand. What a great inclusive phrase, you know, to engage in a disagreement. I love that. And I started using that. 
Now, you might be asking, well, Andres, is all this simulation on you? This is a dance, right? So there'd be times when I'd be using all these filler words. I was trying to be this indirect guy, so I wouldn't sort of trigger all the amygdalas and all that. And I wasn't getting through. So finally, I would say, you know, uh, friends and colleagues, I'm having a hard time getting through. Is it okay if I do this sort of Andres, Latin, passionate, direct style? Now, keep in mind that there's plenty of room for disagreement and debate. I'm very open, but I just want, I need to say it just my best way possible. And then the reaction, the other side was actually appreciation, right? They would laugh in, in a good humored way, but in an appreciative way. Why? Because first I acknowledged our difference. Two, I said, look, I'm going to give you a heads up that I kind of want to go this way, kind of prepare yourself and, and know what it doesn't mean. And then, then I go for it. And then I would say my thing, and then they would say to me, we agree with you 100%. <laughs> and then I would say, uh, okay, you know, I'm a direct guy. Is that 100% or is it 75%? If it's 75%, I'm good, but I just need to know what I'm dealing with, right? So this is kind of this thing about being bicultural. Uh, it's about mutual reciprocal adaptation of both sides. And I think that's kind of what I think the keys to sex are. But hey, unapologetic. I will always say salsa. I will always say yes to Latin food. I will always say yes to speaking Spanish. How do we discuss Latin culture, specifically time, go with the flow, and emotion? The speaker referenced Latina women being expressive without feeding into harmful stereotypes. Yeah, you know, that's tricky, right? And so that's why, first of all, you heard me give the caveat in the middle of the webinar about archetype versus stereotype. Um, And so, but archetypes are important, right? There's normative behavior within cultural groups as there are normative behaviors in corporate and so, but stereotyping is really assuming that every Latina, Latina is going to be emotive or is going to be more fluid with the time. And that would be a disrespect to those individuals. And so therefore we never want to assume the archetype can prepare us for what we may encounter. Like if you go to Peru, I can tell you that, you know, things are going to be a lot more fluid. I can predict that and you need to be prepared for that, but you will find Peruvians who will show up right on time. And so you have to, be able to say, okay, I know these are the norms, but then you have to focus on the individuals and see where they fit or don't fit the norms. And that's sort of a little bit of a dialogue and exploration. And, um, and so, and we have to be careful about denigration, right? Or making fun because there's one can, and, and judge, right? So if we use judgmental language about super being on time or super fluid, that doesn't do anybody any service. If we put it in terms of a preference, a conditioning, a socialization, and that it comes from a good place, um, then um, I think we sort of um, are able to walk away from, you know, what you're concerned about, where the person asks a question about stereotyping or negativity. But these, these norms do exist, but there are many, many, many exceptions, and you, we got to navigate through them. Yeah? Todo bien? Yes, wonderful. Thank you so much, Andreas, for this um, for this wonderful webinar again, and for everyone who participated today. A special thank you to our webinar sponsor, Aon. As promised, the SHRM activity ID for the session is 19-H5WAD. Uh, the activity was just the activity was also posted in the chat. The actual this actual presentation will not be shared. However, the recording of this webinar will be shared on our website within the next week. And um, and Andreas did share his contact information. So for those who um, I who 
were not able to get their questions answers, please feel free to contact him directly. I'm sure he'd be more than happy to answer your questions. Um, and please join us for our next forum webinar on new voices, new visions, ideas about the future of DNI from Next Generations Leaders with presenters Dan Eagle of Inclusion Next Work and Mignon Tolian of Amnesty International USA on Thursday, November 14th at 11 a.m. And a new episode of the Forum Podcast is also now available, um, episode 19, Understanding and Responding to Resistance of Equity and Inclusion uh, with presenters John Parker Derbargosian and Caden Riley. And for those of you in the Twin Cities, join us for our upcoming Diversity Insights Breakfast, Creating One Minnesota, with keynote presenter Governor Tim Walls on Thursday, October 31st. For more information, visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash DIB slash upcoming. And the 2020 Diversity, Diversity Awards nominations are still open. So if you know someone who leads by example and demonstrates a commitment to bold exploration, risk-taking and learning from both failure and success, then nominate them for the Forum's 2020 Diversity Awards. For more information on upcoming webinars, podcasts, awards, and all of our upcoming events, DEI resources, and contests, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search Forum on Workplace Inclusion. Thank you again, Andreas, for this amazing webinar, and thank you, everyone, for attending. Adelante. Gracias. Gracias. Nos vemos. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. In Augsburg, education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.